0: You had me several years ago when I was quite naive. You said we'd make such a pretty pair and that you would never leave. But you gave away the things you loved and one of them was me. I had some dreams, they were clouds in my coffee, clouds in my coffee and you're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. You're so vain, you're so vain I bet you think this song is about you, don't you, don't you? Why start Ruth with a famous love song? Why start Ruth with a popular ballad about the acrimony of love and the the vanity of the heartbreaker? Well, is that not what we expect at the start of this book as we open it for the first time this morning? Well, whilst I recognize that for some of you here, this might be the the very first time that you have ever opened this 3,000-year-old historical account, but for the rest of us, well, we know that if any part of the Bible deserves some cheesy love ballads playing in the background, it would be this book. From the eyes of many Christians, this book is, is the romantic comedy of the Bible, the period drama of the Old Testament. And like every good historical rom-com, it begins with with melancholy and disaster and the failure and vanity of the male species and three heartbroken women. Accordingly, if I was directing Ruth the rom-com, as Naomi packed her suitcases and followed her her vain husband to the taxi, her dreams fading to clouds in her coffee, I think I'd have Carly Simon's 1972 hit, You're So Vain playing as the opening credits rolled. And yet there was another reason why the lyrics, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, is an apt starting point for this book. And that is sadly because many people, many Christians, uh, approach Ruth as they do that song. Perhaps out of an earnest desire to to apply every aspect of the Bible, many Christians seemingly draw very straight lines between themselves and the main characters in this book. And the upshot? Well, you only have to do a quick internet search to see the vast array of garbled messages and, and platitudes and Christian dating advice that some see this book is about. Be a Ruth, says one website. Wait for your Boaz but don't let your dating past hold you back. Be a Boaz, says another. Get to know a woman's personality before her body. Be a Naomi, says another, still. Smash the, the patriarchal sister, sister and be a mum who teaches a girl how to dress to impress. As I read such articles in preparation for this series, I could not help but recall the bluntness of a retired London minister who taught me how to preach the Old Testament one summer. For the Reverend Dick Lucas would hear such moralizing from a young preacher and would despondently peer over his glasses and interrupt, he's not talking to you, silly. <laughs> the historical author is not talking to you, silly. Ruth is not about you. But with such a beautiful love story before us, it's it is tempting, isn't it? It's tempting to view these, these historical events as those which we may draw many moral life lessons from. And yet, we must not be so silly, so vain. For if we are Christians, we are to understand that this love story it is chiefly not about us, and much less so about dressing to impress and, and romantic comedy promises of landing your Mr. Darcy one day. Rather, it is a book situated amongst an array of books which is all about the faithful love of Christ. And how do we know? How do we know that that is how we are to approach this book? Well, the author of God's Word tells us, for what do we read earlier in Luke chapter 24, that the risen Son of God again appears to some of his confused disciples and basically conducts a summer Old Testament preaching class and effectively says at the end of it, he is talking about me, silly. Luke 24, 27 beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. No wonder the apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 describes the Old Testament as as sacred writings able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And so, friends, can you see how we had to handle this book right from the off? As Jesus' disciples now, it with Ruth in our hands, having seen all the promises of God answered in Christ, we are not to be so vain. As his disciples now, we are to see that the biblical history is his story and not our story. Yes, Ruth can and should be applied to us. I shall be embarking upon that in just a moment, but it cannot be done so in a vain way without reference to Jesus. For as I hope we shall see in the next four weeks, this beautiful historical love story between Boaz and Ruth points us forward to the most beautiful love story. In fact, the love story of the very center of all history, the love story between Christ and his people. Accordingly, with such hermeneutical rail guards up, protecting us from websites from the likes of waitingforyourboaz.com, we get to proceed as Jesus' disciples Those who start but by looking for the true application and a true lover in the grand meta-narrative of Scripture, Jesus himself, or when we do, we see that we don't have to look that far. For we see Jesus not merely at the end of this book, when the genealogy of King David is highlighted and there are hints of God's coming promised king, but we also see shadows of Jesus from the very start. For in verse 1, we not only meet a couple of Israelites, a couple who have the blessing of being God's people, but we meet a couple from Bethlehem, a place at the very epicenter of God's promises where the Lord Jesus Christ Himself would be born. We meet Elimelech, a man from Bethlehem, a man whose name meant, God is my king. And we meet Naomi, his wife. And the mother is two sons, a woman whose name meant loveliness. And hence we meet a lovely couple with God as their king. And so those who are symbolically as as close to Christ as one could get in the Old Testament. A couple who have God's promised love lavished upon them. A couple who live in God's promised land. And yet, as we see a couple who are experiencing some hardship, For in verse 1, we read of the, the judges ruling and not God's king. And we read of a famine in the land. Although they live as God's people in God's place, all is not perfect, at present, and so we are to be sympathetic to their suffering. And yet, our sympathy is to instantly evaporate. When we read the second clause of the first verse, for the response of the man named God is my king and the response of his wife named loveliness is nothing less than appalling. One evening, Elimelech sits down to read the newspaper and and terrible reports of of their political judges, and Naomi sits down after serving up dinner, which, which barely feeds a family of four, and instantly, as soon as the boys are in bed, they say to each other, we're done. We're done with God and his place. Let's pack up our bags and go to Moab. Now, to our modern ears, such an emigration probably uh, sounds rather pragmatic, maybe even brave or adventurous. But for the original hearers, the notion of moving to Moab would have been unthinkable. Uh, Limelech and Noamie's neighbors would have have gasped. that The very moment they heard the news for everybody knew that, that Moab was utterly godless. In the book of Genesis, we read that the people of Moab originally came into being through incest. And in the book of Numbers, we read that the king of Moab summoned evil prophets to curse Israel. And in the book of Judges, in this very time period, we see that Moab kept invading and oppressing Israel. In fact, wider historical reading reveals that the god of Moab, Shemosh, was worshipped through child sacrifice. Their flight to Moab sounds sounds sensible to our ears, but in truth, it was shocking and shocking in the extreme. It is the equivalent of a a hobbit family in the shire, running out of tea and toast for second breakfast and so deciding to move to Mordor. And their foolishness is highlighted even more clearly when we consider that the Hebrew for Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And hence, the opening of this book reads, there was a famine, and so they left the house of bread. They were needy, and so they left God's provision. And what is the result? Well, in the short term, it seems to work out, doesn't it? At the end of verse 2, we read that they remained there. They did not drive the minivan to Moab and, and turn around after a massive McDonald's. They, 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 they settle in Moab. Their two boys are schooled in the ways of the Moabites. They they pledge allegiance, perhaps, to the Moabite flag at graduation, and then their boys, verse 4, marry Moabite women. And they live there 10 years. But what is the ultimate result of their tenure? Well, it is nothing more than devastation and death. For in verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband dies, and in verse 5, Marlon and Kilion, Naomi's sons, die too such that by the end of verse 5, Naomi is not left with, it, with anything, not even her name. In verse 5, she is simply called the woman. Accordingly, at this junction, our romantic comedy is not so much heading towards four weddings and a funeral, but rather four funerals and no more weddings. Indeed, when we consider what life was like for a foreign widow in this evil land, We wonder if we're about to watch a horror movie rather than any rom-com. And so what is it that we are to learn here? Well, quite simply, as those looking back with the ultimate promises of God in Christ in our mind, we are to see here that moving away from Bethlehem, leaving God's provision, turning from his house of bread and the place of God's son is ultimately catastrophic. Point one this morning. Turning from Christ is catastrophic. Turning from Christ is catastrophic. On one level, we, we grasp, don't we? We grasp why, why Limelech and uh, Naomi leave, that there is a short-term worldly wisdom to it all. Life in God's land is temporarily hard-going. If they are to gain the good life, they, they must go. And yet, how does Naomi reflect on a decade away from God? In verse 20, when she returns, she says, do not call me Naomi. Do not call me lovely, for my life has not been lovely. Call me Mara, call me bitter, for my life away from this place has been bitter. For verse 21, I now see that a decade ago I really was full, but now I return empty. My Christian friend, it is a cautionary tale for us, and particularly those of us who are young in the faith. We may go through seasons of hunger as God's people, but if we walk away, from God's promises, God's place, God's provision. If we turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ, we will ultimately feel an unbearable emptiness. We will face catastrophe in this life. For although life outside of Christ may promise much fulfillment and and satisfaction in younger days, I promise you it will leave you empty in the end. For life without God is hollow. And life without Christ is is ultimately purposeless. Yes, you may find a a fleeting fullness in hedonism at the the bottom of a beer barrel, or in materialism and a a house decked out in crate and barrel. But finally, when you turn out the light and lay your head down in old age and, and reflect honestly on how you've spent your days, you'll know that you go to bed spiritually hungry. But far more importantly for us to see here, that the far bigger catastrophe is not seen in one decade away from Christ, but rather in three deaths outside of life in Christ. For Ultimately in verse 5, Elimelech and his two sons lay dead outside of God's promised land. They were born as God's chosen people, three men who, who grew up hearing that the promises of God and yet that they choose a grave far away from him. And when they die, when they die, it is too late for them to return. Friends, God gives life in one place and in one place alone. God gave life in the promised land then God gave life in the house of bread then, but today God gives life in his promised son. God gives life in Jesus, his word, his bread of life. And when we die, it is too late to feed on him if we reject him. Yesterday was the funeral of Prince Philip, the husband of the Queen. And watching all the pomp, you would have thought, you'd have thought this man could be no fuller. And yet his dying wish was for his funeral to have no sermon, no word of God to feed on, no Christ. What a catastrophe. When the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, John chapter 6, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Prince Philip and Elimelech and his two sons are pictures of those who would rather starve than come. Accordingly, for any here this morning who are spiritually packing their bags, for any here who are on the brink of walking away because you feel Uh, hungry and hard-pressed, tempted to cross the border of belief and away from Jesus because he has not provided you with all that you really think you need now. Would you stare for a minute at the three dead men in Moab and Naomi in verse five, beside those three graves, her loved ones for whom it is too late. And would you see that ultimately turning from Christ is catastrophic Turning from Christ is catastrophic. Well, for the three dead men in verse 5, it is too late to live in the land, and so for them to learn the lesson. But for their three widows in verse 6 onwards, there is still a chance to turn to the promised land, and and hence point 2 this morning. Turning or returning to Christ is costly. Turning to Christ is costly. Let's pick up the story again uh, in verse uh, 6. Look down with me. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. Again, can you picture the scene? Naomi has spent the morning uh, weekly scratching around in the dirt looking for any stray seeds or or, or moldy crops, and she overhears grumbling at the tea break. The Moabite foreman spits on the ground and says, Guess what? The Lord Yahweh, the the Israelite promise keeping God, He's only gone and given His people food. And Naomi is now seemingly so intertwined with the Moabites that her colleagues forget her nationality. But like the lost son, in Jesus' famous story, she remembers. And she comes to her senses. Just like that boy amongst the the, the pigs in Jesus' parable, she she rises, verse 6, to return to her father's house of bread. The choice from a strictly pragmatic stance is as easy as it was 10 years ago. There is no food here. It's time to pack my bags again. But the emotional and the physical and the spiritual cost for Naomi will be huge. Indeed, we see something of that in verse 20. But before that, we must note here in verses 8 to 14 that Naomi considers that the, that the cost of return will be too great for her two daughters in law. I'm returning home to where my mother lived. She says, you must return home too to to where your mother lives now. You cannot come. It will be too costly for you. You should stay here and you should find a Merbite husband. In 2011, uh, when I married Sarah, there was a cost for her to pay. The cost for her was not just marrying a sinner. No, the cost was much greater than that. She had to marry a British sinner. And so she had to put up with all the British sins of fake politeness and snobbishness, and she had to put up with with cold walks and small cars, and she left apple pie for Marmite and and missed Fourth of July celebrations and didn't understand what to do at Guy Fawkes, and she had to learn all the invisible social etiquette and the importance of over-apologizing. In all honesty, at times, she, she dealt with racism. For sadly, Brits don't love American culture as much as Americans love British culture. And yet the cost for Sarah of not marrying an American man in the 21st century was nothing compared to the potential cost for Orpah and Ruth of not marrying a Moabite man in the 11th century BC. For for life for a single girl with a widowed mother-in-law in a patriarchal society with no police and no social care amid frequent warfare and famine would have been just unbearable. And moreover, Israel hated Moab. There were even warnings against foreign marriage. And so the only chance of protection and provision in Israel would have come from another son from Naomi. Indeed, she log- logically argues in verse 11, the only chance of, of marriage and protection for you would be if I bore two sons for you. For it would be better For it would be their family duty to marry you and to give you children. But even if that was to happen right now, she says, you'd have to wait for them to get older. And then you'd probably be past childbearing age. Time has run out on the promised land being of any use to you. And so verse 12, she says, turn back, my daughters. Go your way. And so in verse 14, the older girl, Orpah, gets it. She cries at the thought of this being the last time they'll ever see each other. But eventually, verse 14, she kisses Naomi goodbye. She kisses God's people goodbye. Ironically, she kisses loveliness goodbye, for remember that is Naomi's Israelite name. Turning to Christ is costly, and Orpah kisses loveliness goodbye. Yes, there's a worldly reasonableness to to staying in Moab, But but again, we zoom out when we remember the significance of God's promised land. We see that that the Orpah, just like her husband, makes a wretched choice. Now, there was probably no significant or or instant agricultural change at the Israeli border for her to see. But spiritually speaking, with God's promises in view, the difference between Israel and Moab was the difference between standing in, in a field of gold and wheat, the sun on your face... And standing on a sheet of ice in the bleak of night. Why does Orpah not turn to the land, not turn to the Lord? Well, essentially, it's because she follows Naomi's worldly advice. For Naomi, at least in in chapter one, is one who makes all her key decisions based on short term safety and happiness and a full belly. Indeed, we gain great insight into Naomi's thinking in verse nine. For how does Naomi uh, there describe having a husband? Look with me. She says, may the Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of your husband. And now the theme of rest is a repeating one throughout the Bible. As the theologian Graham Goldsworthy summarized, biblical rest is found when God's people live under God's rule in God's promised place. And that rest is foreshadowed in a peaceful Israel in the Old Testament but it finds its reality in the peace of Christ in the New Testament. For Matthew 11:28, 28, Jesus famously says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest is found in God's promises, in Jesus, in heaven to come ultimately, and in the promised land then. But can you see where Naomi finds her rest? Can you see where Naomi seeks hope and wholeness? Can you see uh, Naomi's priorities in life throughout the whole of chapter one? One, ensure that you get a spouse. Two, ensure that you get a son. Three, ensure that you get a steady supply of food. And then and only then do you think about identifying as God's people living under his rule and in his promised place. And Orpah listens to her mother-in-law. And so ironically, she kisses loveliness goodbye. Friends, what about you this morning? Where are you seeking your rest? How do you prioritize the, the, the big decisions in life? When there is a choice between instant satisfaction and, and the loveliness of the land to come, what do you choose? Maybe you're here and, and you're not a Christian and your heart of hearts, you know that. Let me tell you, Jesus offers you rest this morning. Rest from from the pointlessness of of chasing after this life and, and marriage and money and materialism, which will soon be gone. Rest from all your guilt and wrongdoing that you may know peace with the one who made you. Rest ultimately in the promised land of heaven. Yes, there is often a price to pay. Let me not hide that. Turning to God is costly. We shall see that in just a moment. But what will you prioritize ultimately? And who will influence that decision? And the lovely Christ, the one who offers you rest, is he not worth another lesson? Perhaps you might pick up a free copy of John's Gospel on the hallway on your way out after the service to weigh up that cost once more. Turning to Christ is costly, but Orpah kisses loveliness goodbye. But what of the book's namesake? What about Ruth? Well, in contrast to her older sister in law, Ruth courageously clings to God's people. Ruth courageously clings to loveliness. Ruth courageously clings to loveliness. And at the end of verse 14, we get one of the most striking pictures in this whole movie. For as Orpah turns and and walks away and back into the Moabite sunset, Ruth, like like a little toddler holding on to its parents' legs, clings to Naomi and will not let go. Naomi tries one more time, one more time in verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth will not. She will not go back to her people and her gods. And it is important to see that she does not return simply because she is acting like a toddler who cannot bear to end the hug. No, Ruth has her eyes wide open to the all encompassing nature of the cost of going into Israel as a poor, single, foreign woman. For we'll look at what she says in verse 16. She is aware of the physical costs where you go, I will go. She's aware of the living costs. Where you lodge, I will lodge. She is aware of the relational costs. Your people shall be my people. And she is aware of the spiritual costs. Your God, my God. And she is aware that the cost is not temporary, as if she could just give it all up. If it didn't work out, she says, Where you die, I will die and be buried. In short, Ruth is a model of turning to Christ and his people. She is a model of what true repentance looks like. And her decision. Pictures the price of entering the true rest. As Jen Wilkins helpfully writes, in contrast to cultural ideas of rest marked by self-care, Sabbath rest is marked by self-denial. And so yes, Oprah is a fool for leaving the promised land behind, but Ruth is not fooled by the costliness of going into the land. And friends, that, that, that complete 180 that the Ruth does is the complete 180 that every Christian must do. Yes, on one level, the, the gospel costs nothing. We sing, and we sing rightly, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. But in order to cling on to the loveliness of Christ's cross, we must let go of everything else in our hands, just as Ruth does here. And so, friends, as a result, in our desire to speak of the freeness of the gospel and in our desire to to speak of the the loveliness of the land to our friends and to our neighbors and and perhaps particularly our own children, we must not play down the cost. For the song, All I Have is Christ, does not mean that that once we have secured a spouse and a a stable income and and steadfast friends, that, that then we may grasp hold of Jesus. No, it means all to him I owe, even if that means singleness or a smaller salary or sinful spouses and siblings and then the forgiveness of them or school friends being deeply offended by our stance on on sexual issues. Indeed, let us not pretend that there are not those uh, here amongst us who are already paying that cost, those who courageously cling to Christ, who give away their salary and reputation for Christ. Those who courageously cling to Christ and and remain single all their days, though they are often asked out by many unbelievers. Those who courageously cling to Christ and say, yes, that is what the Bible says, and so are cut out of the family reunion and friendship circles at work. And let us not pretend that many of us will not face such costs in days to come. You know, 500 years ago, 500 years ago to this very day, in fact, taking into account time zones 500 years ago to this very hour, a famous German theologian named Martin Luther stood before a Roman Catholic council. And there, at the wonderfully titled Diet of Worms, Luther was accused of distorting the gospel because he rightly taught the lovely message of Jesus Christ, that one comes to him by faith and faith alone. And Luther was very aware of the cost, of the unpopular gospel message at the time, aware of the fact that walking towards Jesus meant walking away from his own countrymen, aware that he would be likely condemned and probably hunted down and killed just like his savior. Indeed, so aware was Luther of that, he requested another day to count the cost. But on the afternoon of April the 18th, 1521, he stood again before that kangaroo court, and he said this, Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith, either to the Pope or to the council, because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error. If then I am not convinced by the proof from Holy Scripture, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe nor honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no otherwise. God help me. Friends, I do not have a clue what's going to happen in this country in decades to come. Maybe we shall see huge numbers of people turning to Christ, as Luther ended up seeing in in Germany in the 1520s. But we must also be aware that the opposite might be the case too. Like Luther and like Ruth, we are not called to count the cost in light of what could possibly transpire for a happily ever after life. We are to courageously count the cost on the border of belief based on the promises of God's word. Here we stand, clinging on to the loveliness of him and his people. We can and should do no other. Friends, what cost are you paying today to courageously cling to him? What evidence is there that you are standing with his people? What evidence is there that you have left Moab? And yet as we close... We must also remember that there is one final woman who turns in this chapter. For Naomi, who turned away at the start because of suffering, turns back at the end because of suffering. For so often in life, the pain which caused us to run away from God is the same pain which causes us to come back to God. And so a decade after after vanishing because of hunger, Naomi reappears in the house of bread. And when she does verse 19, the whole town is stirred. We're to a picture, a silence descending on Main Street, and cars stopping, and neighbors staring, and and the elderly waitress at the local cafe dropping her menus in great surprise. Is this Naomi? They whisper. Is that really her? Time has not treated her well. What does Naomi say in return? Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Do not call me sweetness, call me bitterness. Do not call me loveliness, call me unloveliness. Final point this morning. Turning to Christ is costly and Naomi comes home unlovely. Naomi comes home unlovely. On one level, there is a lovely honesty, isn't there, in her deep regret at leaving. There is an admirable admission that she failed. There is, an, there is an attractiveness about her telling the truth about how awful it was, life away from God. Naomi does not say in, in any pride and, and snobbishness, I had such a great adventure overseas, but I felt that Bethlehem was the right place for my retirement. Naomi does not pretend that she has not suffered when she turned away from the Lord and from his people. But the problem is, is that Naomi blames God for it. Verse 20, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Friends, in his sovereign goodness, God regularly uses our suffering and our sin to bring his hungry people back home to him. In the words of the English minister Richard Sibbs, as winter prepares the earth for spring, so do afflictions sanctified prepare the soul for glory. God uses our sin and the suffering that, that comes from it. God allows our sin and the suffering that comes from it. But God is not to be directly blamed for it. But often it hurts so much that believers lash out such that when the wandering Christian comes home, well, well it's messy and it's, and it's painful and it's raw for a while. When the Lord brings us home to him through trial, particularly a trial of our own doing, often in the short term, we are, we are publicly bitter with God and unlovely in our thoughts towards him. Like a child who, who marches into an icy, muddy puddle and then screams at their parent in the middle of a, of a public park when their feet are all wet and cold. Often those who were once lost in the darkest night blame it all on him when they are led from death to life. As the suffering psalmist says with great honesty, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a brute beast towards you. When a sinner comes home to God after suffering, when the lights of of the world fade or, or just go out, when those who wander from God must eat humble pie before his people who can often be quite unforgiving and quite ungracious, sometimes in the short term it can all look rather unlovely. And yet, will the great shepherd raise his crook when a wandering sheep returns to his pen angry? How does the Lord respond to an unlovely Naomi here? A sheep who still bites the hand of the one who still promises to feed it. After reading verse 21, many of us would say, Naomi deserves to stay in Moab. Naomi deserves to return home and to return home alone. Naomi deserves to return in winter when all the food is gone. And maybe that is how you feel this morning with another Christian who has wandered from him. Or maybe that is how you feel after all your wandering years from God and bitter complaints towards him. If that is you, friend, look. Look how God responds. For look at how and when Naomi returns. At verse 22. So Naomi returned. And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Friends, this is our God. He who welcomes home the foreigner, who courageously turns and clings to him. He who also welcomes home the unlovely one, who throws away all their blessings and then blames him for it. And so whoever you are, is he worth turning to today? He bet Let's pray. Gracious God in heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you so much for this glorious pitch of return. Father, we thank you that you do not treat us as we deserve when we wander from you. We thank you that when we were lost and when we were proud that you brought us to an end of ourselves. Father, we thank you that you loved us first. We thank you for your faithfulness, that you even bless when we are bitter. And so would you help all of us to count the cost, to live for you and for you alone. In Jesus' name we pray.